1: I went to one of the premieres of I don't know which season it might have been I don't know which season it was but I went to the premiere and as I get out of, the ta- out of my car with my, with my girl we're walking towards the sidewalk and David Simon's being interviewed on TV so we stop so that I don't interrupt and walk through the camera I stop until he's finished he turns to me And he goes, we did you wrong. (laughs) And then he said to me, but I tell you what, your death scene is when everybody went, okay, these Greek guys are serious. That's what turned it around to have the audience realize, oh, you can't fuck with these guys.
2: Hello, it's Dave here. And I'm Kobe. And you're listening to The Wire Stripped. It's the show where we watch The Wire every single week. Every single episode. You can't fuck with
3: these guys. And we're here talking today about Season 2, Episode 3, Hot Shots.
2: Yes, this is a good one. If you have watched Hot Shots recently or you want to jump in and just chat to us, uh, our social channels are at The Wire Stripped. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, burner at thewirestripped.com. So get in touch. Let us know what you think of this episode.
3: Yeah, please do, guys. And yeah, without further ado, here's our chat, which we recorded... Near some containers,
2: <laughs> we were so we spent so long near those containers, <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> he got
1: the fire and the fury at his command. When well, you don't have to worry, when you hold on to Jesus' hand, we'll all be safe from Satan. When the thunder rolls You gotta keep the devil We're down in the hole
2: We're back. We're outside a shipping container again. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) The cold hard steel of the shipping container.
3: Yep. We're just looking at the uh, the air holes, making sure they're not slammed down. Want to make sure that any any contraband in there is alive. It's got to be safe. Got to be safe. We're here talking about season two, episode three, Hot Shots. One of the main storylines through this one is um, Bunk and Freeman. They've been saddled with the murders because Landsman says, "I need my best people on this," and his best people are, are Bunk and Freeman, uh, which is quite funny actually. Um, not, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. not maybe not funny, but he, he shows he knows. And uh, I've, in a way, I felt sad for Cole because. He must have. Landsman must have just said, "Dude, you're not that good. We need to give it to better people."
2: Yeah, you. or maybe you get fed him some other bullshit. Except, yeah, because he seemed kind of happy about he it. He did do. He yeah, marched it's out like, of the office. Here you go, guys. Yeah. <laughs> good luck.
3: Here's your main connect at the port authority.
2: <laughs> That's all he had. Yeah. That was Cole's case. Yeah. I was on a poster. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Her name's Beattie <laughs> Russell. Yeah.
3: Okay. Good. Cheers, Cole. Um, so they meet. They go to uh, Beattie's office and meet her. And then they head off to Philadelphia because that's where the the Atlantic Lights, the ship, has, has now been docked and it's been held there. Uh, so they decide we just need to see what's going on. Um, and they go to the ship and meet the ship's crew. The main, I don't know, the main, it wasn't the captain we, who took us round, but the one of the main um, people of authority took him round and said, look, you're not going to speak to anyone who will speak English to you. Good luck,
2: basically. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, and we're then faced with an interrogations of, Interrogation scene, which is kind of played for last but also a little bit extremely offensive.
2: Absolutely, I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad. I'm glad we both thought this. And I wonder, is it just, you know, is it, is it just our sort of uh, modern, more modern 21st century lens on this? Yeah. Or is, or are they both being like extremely racist? <laughs> no. And yeah. it, I mean, see,
3: Lester Freeman and Bunkar Black. Yeah. Um, speaking to, there's another black guy. Um, this guy from. What looks like maybe South Asia, like India, India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, maybe. Uh, there's a guy who maybe is, uh, Oriental, Southeast Asian, and there's uh, an an a European guy.
2: They're being incredibly culturally offensive. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Bunk says "yabba dabba do" <laughs> in response to it, as like you said, it is played for laughs. Yeah. And it is it is kind of funny, but I mean, it's absolutely yes, inappropriate it and, and and insensitive. And what's what the
3: worst thing? I and mean, we talked about bunk being a likable character, but also the kind of person who will say these things uh, will be the person you least expect to do things. But then Lester Freeman steps in as well. I know, yeah, the, yeah,
2: Freeman. You kind of think is the the beacon of uh, vir- virtue, shining light. And, yeah, and, but he
3: steps in as well. He doesn't care. gishy gushy motherfucker. <laughs> <it's> like,
2: <laughs> Jesus, guys.
3: Ha, missy-gishy, gushy-gushy, missy
1: mushy motherfucker.
2: Huh? Eh? It's interesting to look back at it now, because this show's 15 years old, mm. and to think, how much of this is just... That was just the climate of the times, and this is just played for laughs, and David Simon didn't wasn't even aware of this, and this is just the way the world was. Or... <laughs> Is is David Simon just writing these characters as they like as they would yeah. treat? And you know they're just like they're just homicide detectives doing their job, and they don't care about anybody or, or whatever. They don't care about other cultures, and they're getting frustrated. So I mean, it's I ca- I can't quite figure out where the line is there. Do you
3: think there might be some maybe some absolution in the fact that they? They really believe that these guys do know how to speak English. They're just really not being cooperative in any way, shape or form.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, probably because, I mean, uh, in the scene after that, the, um, the guy, if he's the captain or whoever he is, tells them, he kind of intuits that. He says yeah. they, they still won't speak English even when the translator yeah. comes. Yeah, they space. still and won't help you out at all, yeah. going to can't yabba dabba dabba So, may, yeah, maybe there's a bit there, but, I mean, you still... Please, everybody, don't say Yabba-dabba-doo when someone talks to you <laughs> in, a, in a different in language. A
4: different language. <laughs> Boy, do we know how to bust Monte Carlo and to never be blue. It's a lot like friends just keep a saying Yabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-doo. If you take your sweeties left for Tahiti, we can give you a clue. There's no need for crying, roar like a lion. Yabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-doo.
3: It's not legit. It's not Flintstone times. <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're talking to Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble,
5: don't, yes. don't
3: greet anyone with the yabba dabba <laughs> Going back to the Jane Doe's, uh, Manulti is back at the coroner, the doctor, and he, he finds out that, yeah, he has a good chat with the doctor and finds out that, A, the doctor realises that some of, the, some of the girls were in Hungary because they've had breast implants and that they'd had intercourse uh, prior, to, prior to dying. Um, and Smug McNulty finds out a few things and dances over to dances over to Homicide which into one of my favourite scenes actually uh, with B.D. Russell and Bunk and Freeman
2: it's very good yeah so uh, he you know he marches in there having like I've cracked the case guys, yeah guys and they just like reel the whole thing back to him because they're five steps ahead yeah of exactly there. it's very very good
3: guys make way McNulty's back back again <laughs> Guess he's <who's> back, McNulty. <laughs> that's that's what he wanted. He wanted like, a round of applause. Yeah, um, and I love how Beady steps in as well. She's not she's not afraid. You already know Beady's involved, and she is. Once again, we said it before in the first two episodes um, of this season. She's she's a strong police police person, police woman. Yeah, she's and good I like police. her. She's
2: just she's just likable. Yeah. she's like down to earth. She's very she's very warm, mm. and I think crucially, you get. At the end of this scene, you get um, a little bit of uh, a moment of emotion from McNulty and, and B.
6: Amy Ryan's fantastic. I think uh, I was aware of her before I saw this because, again, I caught up with it on DVD. This is Chris
3: Hewitt, a podcaster with the Empire Film Podcast.
6: Uh, because of Gone Baby Gone. And she's great in that. And she was nominated for an Oscar, I believe, you know, which I should know, film journalist. And... Uh, so I knew she was, you know, she was great. Uh, I didn't know she was in this uh, to the extent that she is. And I was slightly disappointed going through the rest of the, the show that she wasn't in it that much. I mean, the very fleeting appearances post-season two.
2: I had been saying in the last episode how disappointing and upsetting it is when you look at how these women were dealt with yeah. by the system as a stat, um, as, you know, as literally collateral damage. But finally, we finally we get a little bit of raw humanity from McNulty and, and Beattie who are like, I don't, I don't want to see these women end up as uh, medical cadavers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then later we get a little scene where McNulty's looking at a photo of one of the girls in a bar with, with Bunk and he says he's going to give her a name and he wants to find her family. So I'm like... This was a huge sort of uh, breath of relief for me because I thought the last episode, while it was brilliant from a plot perspective, was so, so unbearably cynical. Yeah, it was very bleak. Yeah, very bleak. It really sort of upset me. So I just needed a sort of an emotional... Hook back in, and uh, McNulty. And yeah, McNulty gives you the, me that. McNulty gives you yeah. that
3: hook back. McNulty's fantastic. This is James Dyer, a film journalist and podcaster with Empire Magazine and Pilot TV. I love McNulty. I like him because he is a twat and he is a joker and he's like, but he's absolutely driven. And for him, it is about the human. and Like he'll play by his own rules. He does what he wants to do. He doesn't give a shit about careerism. He doesn't give a shit about you know what the major thinks. He sees these as human stories and he wants to get results to it and i think you're right it differs from from everyone including bunk in that it's not about statistics for him uh and for and this is something that simon makes a point of getting across that oftentimes for the police department as a whole certainly when you get up to sort of colonel and above it's all about statistics they don't care about anything else it's all about juking stats and moving stuff from one column to another you know no one's actually thinking these are people and this is shit that's happened Uh, And I think McNulty is the one character
6: on that side where that's, you know, that's a clear priority for him. There is a human being inside McNulty. He's, he is this close, and the show can sometimes be this close to tipping over into cliche and tipping over into conformity and convenience, and you could argue that having McNulty just happen to find a corpse whilst he's on this, you know, marine duty, that's a tad convenient, and then linking into the larger plot, maybe. But He's also a character that, if it played the wrong way, he could be, absolutely be just that large land life. I don't give a shit action hero. Uh, so he needs things to to he needs things to ground him. He needs things to humanize him. Bunk is one of those, and I think that BD is as well.
2: All right, let's check in. Uh, let's check in with the Sabaka details. See how things are going. Oh wait, they're doing nothing. They're watching <laughs> cartoons and playing poker. Like I mean, we've all. You know, we've all we've all had jobs where you, you, you got a bit of just downtime, yeah. maybe for, you know, you go on Facebook for half an hour or sure. whatever. It is. Everybody does that. But like, what do they think? What do they think <laughs> is going <laughs> to happen here? They just do not care. They're just like, this is, seems to be their whole day. Do you think we've been spoiled
3: by event. the previous detail of the, of the previous? Do you think this is do you think this is how all details tend to happen?
2: Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe that's what—that's actually what a detail is. Yeah. And then they just—knobbing just about. Pull some hand-to-hands at the end or whatever, and say, "Oh, we did something." Yeah, they've just got—they've got, uh, they've
3: got uh picture on the, the chalkboard. Not, they don't have—they don't start. even have his uh, name. They just literally <laughs> is that all it is. Yeah, it's just like, a picture. Yeah, it's just a picture <laughs> on the on the chalk on the uh, on the pinboard, and that's it. One thing that struck me here is that Prez is just kind of lost. I don't think he feels he's got the authority to do anything there. Well, he, we know he doesn't have the authority because season one, he tried to get Herc and Carver to do stuff and they just ignored him. Yeah, yeah. You need someone like... He, Prez thrives when he's surrounded by people who can let him do what he needs to do, but he's not the person to get the gears in motion.
2: He's an, uh, he's an introvert, isn't he? Yeah. And I, I mean, he worked best in the season one detail... When he was, you know, everyone was out doing their police business and he was back at the office doing crossword puzzles yeah. and figuring out codes. Exactly. Like that's, and also, you know, when when he got paired with Freeman, mm. suddenly he had this brilliant mentor sort of uh, trainee mm-hmm. uh, dynamic and he really shunned. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you're, you're right. Prez Prez doesn't have the drive of the leadership to get this thing going and nor can he get these humps get these guys. into gear. No. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, so he basically goes and, uh, you know, tattletales to his father-in-law at, uh, at his anniversary party. Yeah. Um, and I think this is very interesting because you get, you know, he, not only does he tell him that nothing's happening and it's very frustrating... <laughs> But it gives him it gives Valcek this crucial bit of insight into uh, the Barksdale detail from season one mm. that they got super close to the money and where that was going and then Burrell shut it down. Yeah. And you can see Valchek's eyes visibly lighting <coughs> up at this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. So what does he do? He heads straight to Burrell at a council meeting. I think this is very nicely timed, uh, just as he's about to go in. And he basically, you know, he threatens him by withholding his votes. Yeah. And then he gives him the little the little stinger, you know, maybe we can follow that money again uh, and see where that leads.
4: Some of the scenes I, I remember vividly were scenes that involved Balchek with black guys. I mean, black cops, okay?
3: This is Al Brown who played Valchek in season two of The Wire.
4: And and that obviously the way the wire was written, I although I was a white cop, the character I was playing would not have grown up with a whole bunch of black guys. I I felt that I certainly didn't think Valchek was prejudiced, but but I just thought thought He represented a character, I had to keep in mind, a character that I felt that when Valchek became a cop, whenever he started, there wouldn't have been that many black cops and things had changed over the over the years do you know what I mean
2: what does he say I want I mean in a classic offensive Valchek way he says I want the black guy I want the black Dan- guy who Daniels, did the last yeah. detail <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh well done Valchek um, so in a way it's like Valchek is getting the band back together <laughs> it is absolutely yeah. yo, Omar's back
1: yo so come on your Omar's coming man yeah, oh shit
3: Bung's been trying to get a bead on, on Omar but um, doesn't know where he is um, or so he says we don't know at this point we don't know what's going on um, but we see him with a new guy Dante Dante um, and they're scoping out they're scoping out a stash which they're going to raid later on and I love the scene a, a you know Omar's teaching Dante how to do it yep um, you know this idea guy wait these guys they'll come out of the laundry basket we'll, we'll just watch them and we'll go and steal it later but little do they know There's two ladies outside who've already scoped this place out, and they do the stick-up.
2: And And, and I love that they do it in the exact same way. Yes. Yeah. It Uh, shows that they're pros.
3: This is the cold open, isn't it?
2: It is, yeah. yeah.
3: Um, And this is brilliant. Um, Omar's so pleased. He's he's not upset. He's just like, (laughs) that is brilliant. I like that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. He's got uh, begrudging admiration, I think. A slow slow nod of respect.
3: And I'd forgotten about these two ladies in my... um, before rewatching this for, for, the, for the podcast. Um, but they've become, they've become a team with the ladies. Um, what are their names? Kimmy and Tasha. Kimmy and Tasha. And that's great. I love the fact there's four people now as the stick-up crew and they, they work together on scams.
2: Yeah. Omar's getting his own band together. Yeah. It's like a super group, isn't it? Yeah,
3: it, it is. Yeah. And, and also then it opens up the opportunity for different types of scams because if he's got two ladies on the team, two ladies going past the stash house, are not treated in the same way as Omar would be. Or two guys going past, yeah. they're not just they're just under the radar. Do a few things, say hi to someone, maybe flirt with a guy, and that's that's what happens. And this opens up the the world to Omar and, and Dante.
2: And they and they get to it means that they can use a child for their various yeah. ends which is uh, to gain dark. access to a drug house <laughs> uh, armed with guns, um, which is f- terribly uncomfortable. Again, just when, you think, just when you think you like Omar and he's like the Robin Hood of the projects, he just comes along bring and some does something in. like that. Yeah.
0: Well, the funny thing is, I understand why my cousin told me that the role would be perfect for me because I am Kimmy in a sense.
3: This is Kelly Brown, who plays Kimmy from The Wire. I must apologize at this point because the sound quality isn't that great, but rest assured, we'll be speaking with Kelly again soon and we'll bring you those clips shortly.
0: Kimmy is a part of me growing up I, um, I was a fighter, you know, I was, I was always in a fight. It was always a situation happening on the street. I wasn't necessarily trying to get in fights, but fights always found me. So I had to really assert myself and really, um, you know, almost like survive in in a certain environment. So Kimmy felt right at home, actually. It just kind of felt like, um, I was reconnecting with a certain side of myself that I've actually left a long time ago. But you know, it, it felt it felt fun, it felt exciting, and it felt um, sincere.
5: Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Johnny. I'm a journalist based in Glasgow. Um, I weirdly kind of first got into the Wire through rap battles. Um, If you YouTube the Wire rap battles on YouTube, you'll see it's like the most referenced thing in rappers' verses. I'm a big hip hop fan, so I kind of I got into it from there. And anyway, when I watched season one, I kind of thought it was just going to be this well-written kind of gangster show, which is the sort of thing I like anyway. Um, Instead, season two develops this really kind of nuanced illustration of how you know, neoliberal economics has devastated a community in this case and how the show's systemic forces not only kind of fail but are unwilling to intervene on that community's behalf. And those themes kind of crop up again in the following seasons in politics and education and so on. Um, I didn't catch all that on the first watch but it's one of the reasons I'd rank season two up there, just below four maybe, as my favourite. It's just so, so good, uh, fantastically written, fantastically directed. Um, yeah, so that's
3: why I love season two of The Wire. And that, there, guys, was a burner message from Johnny from Glasgow. Thank you very much for sending that in. If you want to leave us, anyone here listening, wants to leave us a burner message, you can do so using WhatsApp memo. Um, our number is plus four four seven five three four eight three one six five eight. And just in case you don't get that number, you can get it anywhere on our social channels. Uh, Dave, how else can they get in contact with us?
2: well i'm glad you asked kobe uh we're so natural uh you can email us burner at thewirestrip.com just email us a little voice memo uh just record it into your phone if you don't fancy using whatsapp or any of that nonsense
3: and we'll get them and we'll play out the next messages next week so we still want to know guys um where does season two fit in the in the rankings for all of the wire seasons for you
2: Meanwhile, back at the docks, uh, Nick is getting a haircut. (laughs) (laughs) Exciting as ever. It is. Um, But this is the first time we meet his girlfriend and his young daughter. Yeah, Amy. And this is a good scene because we... You know, you get a little bit of background into Nick's motivations, you know. So we know he doesn't have any money. Um, We know he's living with his mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we see kind of what he's striving for. He wants to buy a house. He wants to uh, give his daughter and his girlfriend a home. Yeah. uh, Because she's, you know, being bullied at school um, by her her friends. Um, So it's kind of, it's sad because he just wants, you know, he wants... A normal. He just wants, you know, the classic American dream. Essentially, yeah. he wants that sort of uh, house like with fences thing.
3: I mean, the fact he doesn't live with his with his baby mama, and and they want to. There's nothing really to stop them, but they just they just literally kind of. It's that it's bad that they
8: money. can't do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so what I what I feel that they did for season two was um, they 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 shine the light on on a widespread poverty that went beyond the black neighborhood.
3: This is the voice of Damon Gordon, who was a production assistant on season two of The
8: Wire. Like I knew that, that that white people suffered too, but I didn't know to that scale and I didn't know that, hey, they have the same problems that I have. They have the same financial struggles that I've gone through. So one thing that resonated to me was, um, the character Nikki Sabaka and, um, he He had a speech, um and it kind of resonated me where he just had his hands tied. He you know wanted to support his girl and and raise his daughter and and you know he just was frustrated and i and i and I got that, and that was the link that made me understand that his pain was no different from
7: my pain. The cynical thing about what's happening in our country right now is that. There's a whole segment of uh, white America that is experiencing the kind of disenfranchisement that the black population has been experiencing since this country's inception.
3: This is the voice of Deirdre Lovejoy, who played Rhonda Pillman in The Wire.
7: We, and I will count myself among a sort of privileged uh, class of, you know, just white people that have sort of taken rights and and freedoms uh, in stride, if not for granted. And uh, there's a whole segment of us that are being absolutely disenfranchised in a way that, that can't come close to, but certainly, you know, suggests a flavor of what, uh, you know, the black community's been experiencing since day one, so it's
2: interesting. And, then, and we get more of that because we, you know, we get more of Nick trying to get work and he, uh, and he's not getting anything Ziggy tries to get him back on the back on the white mic deal, yeah, uh, but he's still not having it. Um, but he says that he'll think of something else. Yeah. They're basically they're they're moving they're moving a whole container out of there uh, while making it look like it's it's a mistake or mm. it's the wrong box. So yep. it's it's hundred it's percent stealing. yeah, oh, just yeah. <laughs> stolen in an, an entire container's intelligently uh, in a way worth of cameras. Well it I mean it, it's it's not necessarily intelligent. I mean, it does require some intelligence, but it requires a lot of coordination, <laughs> I think, and a lot of you. You got to get a buy-in from, well, three to four people. I mean, I think it's a little unclear whether Horseface is actually in on it or he's just letting it happen. Yeah, uh, true.
3: I think Horseface has been there, done that, and he kind of goes, yeah.
2: Yeah, and we know Horseface do. takes vodka crates yeah. off the back this of. Is uh, a, yeah. So it's yeah. I think I think when I think they say that they've got, they're cutting it three ways, so I think it is. Um, it's it's just the three of them. So they've stolen basically a, a container full of full of cameras, yep. and they take it to uh, some sort of dodgy back alley electronics store. The kind of, the kind of guy you'd find in the in the Canary Islands. Yeah. So we we it. met
3: this guy. I can't remember his name. Uh, maybe maybe fact checker will um, pop. Fact checker producer will pop in
2: here with his name. Kobe, you called. The elevator music started, and I answered. This is producer Tom with a fact check. The name of the character is George Alexander Glicas. I think that's how it's pronounced. Also known as Double G.
3: We met him with, when we met the Greeks in the first episode, briefly. So they, he's, he's very oh, well tied. Right. Yeah, he's super tied in with the Greeks. And he's their kind of fence yeah. um, for these kind of illegal goods. And yeah, they take the, they take the cameras to, to him and says, and Ziggy drives a hard bargain.
2: I th- this is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. This is where Ziggy really shines here. Yeah. Like we, uh, Ziggy shows his his value. It seems <laughs> like he's a bit of a techie guy. Yeah. I think. Um, so again, it's like Ziggy's just in the. Like he's just born into the wrong family. Yeah, born it's just not into manual labor trade. kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he should be. You, you kind of see Ziggy might have shunned as sort of like a, a, joker computer programmer in a university. Maybe mm. he would have done well. So it's 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 actually quite sad. It made me actually. This episode made me empathize with Ziggy a lot more, particularly the the scene after they've fenced the cameras where he's at the bar and he's at Dolores's, and and we see Dolores giving that wad of cash that, that Frank, his father, has left for this down-in-his-luck uh, worker. And it's yeah. a really like beautiful, touching moment that Frank has just basically given this guy a lot of cash so he can pay his bills. And Dolores says, you know, your father's a good man. And Ziggy's got this really mournful expression on it's almost like this self-realization that he isn't that and he isn't his father and he doesn't quite know how to to how to get there he doesn't know how to how to step out of the shadow
7: well i i like season two because it showed real people at work it wasn't just the police and the drug dealers like the first scene
2: this is jill redding who played dolores as in Dolores' bar.
7: It it showed real people at work with the struggles of losing the, the work in, in Baltimore on the docks. Also the um, the fact that the a lot of the land down there is being turned into condominiums, which is took place. It actually happened. There was it's just been a loss of industry in Baltimore in general, and that was showing the what people were going through. Um, the, the theming that went on on the docks was a little bit of a um, <laughs> kind of uh, interesting to me. I had no idea if, if that ever took place or people would drive out with truckloads full of stuff or not. But I guess it was easy enough to happen.
2: But we should mention very quickly... Um, the cameras that uh, the top of the line cameras what that Ziggy was fencing so this is
3: 2003 2004
2: 2003 i was released so i guess it was maybe 2002 they filmed it but all digital good 4 megapixels
3: Magnificent <laughs> So what's your What's your phone camera At the moment Do you even know
2: I don't even know Because yeah. who counts Megapixels no, anymore exactly. It's just like It's just the best Camera ever That's what the ads Tells you um, I think we stopped Counting megapixels Around 12 or 15 yeah. Or something It's like probably Like a thousand It's in double now. digits Comfortably yeah. But the big thing Is that these cameras Have 16 megabytes Of memory Kobe Which I, that, I That's about 4 photos <laughs> <laughs> It is yeah Yeah <laughs> But it's got three extra digital zooms.
3: Five hundred pounds. these oh. are. I remember traveling. Oh, I, the, I remember traveling and I had a similar kind of camera. So it's, it's kind of nostalgic for me. Um, but now I think about it; it's, a, it's kind of a bulky camera. The images were quite good, but you you know had to be in high res mode.
2: They're uh, impractical. Uh, yeah, and and you and you're gonna upload it via USB yeah. connection when you get home from a holiday. Oh, it's gonna
3: take so long. Oh, uh, yeah. th- there's no cloud. Windows ninety
2: eight. Yeah, probably. good lord. But, you know, like Nick said, it's the Cadillac of cameras.
9: Five, <laughs> Windows NT 4.0 or the Mac OS system 7.5 or later. That pretty much covers the field. So, folks, if you're in the market for a digital camera, or business, or the family, or both, take a look at the Sony Digital Mavica. High resolution and DGA images on a full featured digital camera, all of the convenience of a floppy disk. Imagine that. Oh
5: look
2: at that! It's a Kodak moment in the house. So we ch- we check in again with uh, with Frank Sabaka mm-hmm. and we're we're at some is that some sort of event? Is it a political event?
3: Yeah, it's a political event at the at the church, which he's kind of coordinated with lobbyists and also the church. And this gives real insight. This is where we can. This is where I really kind of say Frank, where Frank Zabaka's heart is, because he is trying to get more work for his men mm. that's why that's that's his main motivation any money he's getting uh, whether it's via illicit means or not it's to try and grease the palms of these guys so they can do things like dredge the canal so bigger boats can come in and do the grain grain tower so there's more just basically just wants more work for his guys and that's what he's doing and, and that's why he's lobbying here again uh, but that leads us to meeting Senator Clay Davis for the for the first time.
2: <laughs> and, we, and we find out that, uh, you know, as the lobbyist tells Frank, they've already sunk 40K into Clay Davis. Yes. And he still hasn't come in. It's yeah. classic Senator Clay Davis.
1: I never saw him as deeply corrupt. I just saw him as a guy playing the game. I, I, it's hard to explain that, but <clears throat> I, never, I never, for one, saw him as a deeply corrupt guy. My name's is Isaiah Whitlock Junior, better known as Clay Davis, and you're listening to the Wire Script. She that would have sent the character in a totally different direction. I really felt that. I really felt no, he's not corrupt. He's just uh, he's a guy playing the game, if that makes if that makes sense. I'm just out here playing the game the way it's supposed to be played and I happen to be winning. I can say this honestly, when I when I play a character, I always believe that that character is right. You've got to be able to justify everything that you're doing. So I always felt that what he was doing was right because I could justify it in my mind. I mean, I think that's probably what helped me uh, play the guy is that everything that I was doing was justified. The other thing is that... Um, Especially when you look at the world today, I'm no more of a crook than, you know, some of the major crooks, Uh, uh, you know, you know big business and things like that
2: this makes you like Frank even more because it's him putting in the hard graft and he's rolling up his sleeves and he's he's out of his element like yeah he is can it, see he's in a shirt and tie and he's uncomfortable yeah. wearing those clothes he feels out of place with the politicians he doesn't know how to schmooze mm. either he doesn't know how to talk to Clay Davis it's no. awkward and it ends very abruptly so this is it's very unnatural for him so the fact that he was able to attain any money at all to keep his guys afloat you know it's it's a real sign of his dogged determination yeah
9: if you're a ship now and you're stopping in florida and you're on your way up the east coast to either philadelphia new york or boston because they're all major port towns as well a stop in baltimore could add a day or more to your trip
3: this is Andrew Johnston, a podcaster who comes from the great state of Maryland.
9: So you're only going to stop in Baltimore if you know it's going to make you a certain amount of money, which didn't use which used to be yes. The answer was always yes, but it hasn't been that way since the 70s. So What they did uh, along many years ago is it would take you a full day or more to get up into Baltimore and then another day or more to get out of Baltimore. So we just cut a line through Delaware, which is on the east, is is between much of Maryland and the Atlantic Ocean. We just cut this line straight through it, sea level. It's this amazing canal, the Chesapeake-Delaware Canal. And it meant you could take your one-day trip up to Baltimore and then go along without having to take another day to get back through the Chesapeake Bay. But of course, again, as fewer ships arrived, this canal hasn't been taken care of. So his whole thing is he wants to dredge this canal. It's this amazing, like, our villain, air quotes, Frank Sabatka, is doing all sorts of illicit activity to dredge a canal. Like, the most mundane thing you would never think of but that literally means life and death for his union members that canal the extra meter that you could dredge it to get it to the sea level it's supposed to be would mean that boats of a certain size would would suddenly baltimore would become a viable stop along their East Coast trip, whereas the trip that they, you know, the two days, just shaving that day return off, is huge. You know, we're talking about millions of dollars. The
3: final storyline we're following, the the Bartsdale crew. Uh, there's a few kind of intertwining bits here. First of all, um, they're following Tilman, the following Tillman, the the police officer, the, sorry, the the correctional officer, uh, who's been giving shit to eBay, and they get some dirt on him. This is the first time. Following them, we, this is the first time we see uh, Butchie. Yes, Butchie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, blind Butchie, as they refer to him, uh, unpolitically correctly. <laughs> um, but we see him for the first time um, because this is where Tillman. Tillman is the one that supplies the drugs to the prisoners. Yeah. Um, Stringer and his guys find this out and said, so roll up a deal with with uh, Butchie um, to hotshot the drugs.
2: Which is the name of this episode. Yeah, it's which called is, Hot shots. And, and I, didn't, I didn't know what that, that term was, but do, do you want to maybe explain that to to people? So Hot
3: Shots, are, yeah, so they, they lace the the packets with some kind of poison, arsenic or whatever. Um, so it at least maims the person who ingests ingest the drugs, uh, likely going to kill them. Um, and that's what they do. They, they, they lace all the, all the drugs, they give it to Tillman, Tillman then pass it on to the prisoners prisoners do it at night many prisoners die
2: and so, and so we get we get an insight into you know Avon might be in prison but he still holds an awful amount of power Absolutely, yeah. and he can really get things done yeah. uh, and we also see you know why he didn't want D'Angelo on drugs yeah. and we think that's a we think that's a very sort of uh, loving family uncle kind of move no, don't do drugs yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what it kind of seemed like but no it's just very calculated for his own safety mm.
3: um, and then part of that was well this is not fall I would say but following on from Brianna saying D'Angelo needs to see his his kid to make sure that he's he knows why he's doing the time uh, so String goes along to see to see Donet Donet it's quite a a gross scene well first of all it's gross because he steps up on, on uh, D'Angelo's baby mama yeah um,
2: but then there was tongue everywhere yeah there was so much tongue <laughs> it was it was like
3: it was like the first time it's like when you go to school disco
2: <laughs> yeah and people
3: are kissing for the first time I <laughs> think the tongue needs to go out the tongue needs to protrude before the lips touch oh, <laughs> it, was, it was
2: everywhere it was all tongue it was it was hard to stomach
3: um but yes, they're a thing now.
2: <laughs> yeah, they are. Oh, I, I enjoyed um, Stringer Bell's quick, uh, quick marketing lesson with the, the guys in the car. But yes, the phones. The, the l- <laughs> yeah. He not.
3: Lo- he has not lost uh, what he learnt in <laughs> macroeconomics no. 101, has he?
2: <laughs> so the market, the market saturation. Because uh Poot's got two phones. I really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah I really enjoyed this sort of little tangential story about Poot still still being still being on it yeah. with his uh, his uh, baby mama phone and his work phone. Um but Stringer's like yeah market saturation so better sell st- sell up mobile phone shares. <laughs> I feel like he's gonna regret that ten years, ten years later.
6: <laughs> this is one device <clears throat> and we are calling it iPhone. Today, today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone.
3: Tillman is the person that brings the drugs into the into the into the prison, and you see him like divvying up the drugs and everything in the in the car park. In the
2: car park. Yeah, what the hell, man? What are you doing? Do it at home. Yeah. <laughs> Do it anywhere. Do it anywhere that isn't where you're working. Yeah in plain sight of where, there everybody. Should, where
3: there should be a lot yeah. of cameras
2: <laughs> yes exactly. there'll be a lot of cameras
3: oh, Tillman's here what's he doing he's, he's like looks like I don't know looks like he's doing lines of, I don't know what he's doing but, it did
2: look exactly yeah. like that
3: um, so. dear god
2: man um, I actually found out um, from Jonathan Abrams' book that Tillman was a, uh, an actual police commissioner in Baltimore the name Tillman okay. so they, it's another case of David Simon and Ed Burns pulling real pulling life names into into characters. Uh, he's the guy that first signed off on um, on Simon and Burns or uh, S- Simon following the um, the homicide unit. Okay. For, for a year, Tillman.
3: Oh, so this is this is good homage, homage to it.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. Where it all began. Look at here, look at here.
1: And that Tillman right there, just like a prison guard, all. Yes, he is.
2: In this episode, though, uh, one of my favorite. Little moments with Valtchev happens. You notice this when, I uh, mean,
3: I mean, generally, season two is a Valchek heavy. <laughs> it really, is. sublime, isn't it? <laughs> he's,
2: the, he's a hero. Well, he's not a hero in the hero. Of that. But he's like, I absolutely adore him. He's just you love to hate him. He's just like this little sleazy rat man. Um, but the, he, there's a point where he he comes into he just. I don't remember what the, what the scene was, but he's coming into his office, mm. and he's his PA's outside, and she goes, "Good morning," and then he says
6: absolutely nothing, walks right past <laughs> her into his
2: office, and I think that little moment tells you so much about Valchek. Yeah.
0: Good morning, Major.
2: Well, she's a like
3: a, she's like an underling, and she doesn't deserve a hello or any kind of salutation.
2: Exactly. He do, she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't even register to him. Like she's not even there. Yeah. He's just like he's the most. Like I didn't think we could meet a more narcissistic character than McNulty, but, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but than Valchek.
3: There. I mean, in a previous episode, well, is in the first episode, Prez is trying to talk to Val, talk to his father-in-law Valchek, about what he wants to do. Valtech kind of listens. He- you could clear. He's not really paying attention in any way, shape, or form. and Then goes. Well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be a sergeant, and then you're going to be a major, and you're going to take care of my daughter. Yeah. So you, you wonder if he's actually even registered anything that Pres had said.
2: No, he's yeah, too busy yeah, staring <laughs> at a stained glass mirror of himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing, I and mean, we've talked. We talked a little bit about the um, how the the bunkin' Freeman talking to the um, the, the ship workers was quite yeah. racist. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting looking back at The Wire uh, with a sort of, you know, a quote-unquote 21st century lens, because I mean, <laughs> it is the 21st century, but it was the very early 21st century. Yeah. And I think times have changed a lot, and I think sort of uh, there's been a, de- a definite shift towards uh, politi- political correctness, I would argue, for the better. But I, another one I noticed, uh, interestingly, because um, is when Jay is talking to B.D. Russell when mm. he first meets her, and they're in the office yeah. in this episode. And he, uh, she's in uniform. And he sort of, he kind of says to her, uh, I wrote down what he said, actually, because he says, although there is some small charm to a woman in uniform, we wear plain clothes in Homicide, which is firstly, like, really patronising. But then he literally tells her exactly what to wear. Yeah. Like, this is, I mean... I don't think the the word mansplaining existed in 2003, but this is this is it. This is the definition of it.
3: But in that in that scene, he also kind of ripped into Freeman and into uh, Bunk at the same time as to what they were wearing.
2: He did. To be fair, he's he's equal opportunity. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if anything, he's really he's uh, you know paving the way towards a golden a golden future. <laughs> Right, that's it for us this week Next week we're going to be watching Season 2, Episode 4 Hard Cases It's the podcast. one where Bubbles comes back um, We have to thank everyone who contributed to this episode We can't
3: do this podcast in this way Without you guys, so Big up to all of you
2: Well we can do it, but it will literally just be us talking And nobody, talking. nobody wants that Well some people um, want that, but I think
3: people like, you know like here Nobody German. wants that, Kobe. Don't don't <laughs> fool yourself. There's
2: not a single person out there. They just they come here for the for the wire people, and we're just like we just get in the way. We're just chatting. Um, we're just <laughs> we're like got oh, these guys again. Uh, we also uh, would like to thank Sonics who uh, do all our transcribing, and you can get uh, a free hundred minutes if you go to sonics.ai forward slash invite forward slash stripped. Yeah,
3: and a link there is in the show notes as well if you just want to click on that. Uh, Thanks to Chris Sotera and uh, Izzy
2: Lawrence for the graphics. Um, They're super cool. And thanks, as always, to Martin and Sam from the Song by Song podcast who do that brilliant version of Way Down the Hole that you hear in every episode.
3: Yeah, thanks, of course, to producer Tom who makes us all sound fantastic
2: and puts everything together. And don't forget, you can talk to us... And Tom, talk to any of us yep. at The Wire Stripped, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us burner at thewirestripped.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and review us, guys, on whichever podcast app that you use. That's it for us. We'll see you next week when we are not going to be outside a shipping container. We've finally moved on. Yeah, we moved on. We're somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> they asked us to leave.
3: <laughs> Kicked us out. Did they kick us out? <laughs> yeah. oh, well. Alright, guys. Oh, catch later.
7: Bye. Bye.